At this time, would you open your Bibles with me for today's scripture reading uh, as we continue in our sermon series on seeking God. And today our passage comes from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. And so as we usually do, I'll be reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. Again, that's Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. This is the word of the Lord, prayer for spiritual strength. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Good morning. We're continuing our Sunday morning teaching series today on Seeking God. And just to catch you up where we are in this series, for the first half, we looked at the evidence, the things that come out of your life when you're seeking God. And we're now in the second half where we're focusing on what is it that you actually do in order to seek God. Now, last week, we looked at something that often goes unnoticed, that before you do anything to seek God, you first have to want him. You have to desire him. And so we could spend the rest of these weeks talking about all of the kinds of things that you and I need to do, the various spiritual disciplines that we can do. But if you don't want to seek him, then all of those things are useless. Either you'll listen politely and, and you won't do them, or worse, you'll do them as a way of getting something for yourself. You'll do them because you feel guilty if you don't, and you don't want to feel guilty, so you do them to make the guilt go away. Or you'll do them because you think, this is what godly people do. And I want to think of myself as a godly person. I want other people to think of me as a godly person, so I'm going to do these things. In other words, you will do spiritual disciplines. You'll pray, you'll read the Bible, whatever. Not to seek God, but to seek yourself. To seek a guilt-free conscience or some kind of religious reputation, which means you're just going to be frustrated. And you're going to end up thinking that Christianity just doesn't work. And so last week we started by asking, how do you develop more desire for God? How is that possible? Or how do you rekindle desire for God if your desire has burned low or if it's even gone out? So if you weren't here with us last week, if you were away on the youth retreat or you're just away... Let me urge you, go back to that message. You can find it on our podcast. You can find it on the website. Go back to that. Because everything else that we talk about over these next several weeks is built on that foundation of desire. It's built on that foundation of wanting more of God than you already have. And young people, teenagers, I know that the messages are not always easy to listen to, but I also know that you do a lot of other things that aren't easy. I know that you excel in video games. I know that you throw yourself into sports and athletics and that you see a real benefit from those. So let me urge you to also go back, try 
listen to those messages. If you have questions, ask your parents, ask your youth group teachers, Pastor Nick, or you can come talk to me. Email me. I love helping people to see a little bit more clearly how to actually understand God. It really is possible for all of us to grow in wanting more of God, regardless of our age, and we all need to. Okay, that was last week. This week, we're trying to build on that foundation of wanting God, which means what? You're going to need to reach out to Him. You're going to need to talk to Him, to pray. But what do you pray for? How do you know what to ask for? In order to know that, you have to have a sense of what it is that God is actually doing in your life, what goal He has in mind. And you see that goal at the end of Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3. And so we're going to look at this prayer upside down. We're going to start first by asking, what's the goal that directs our prayer? And then second, what's that middle piece? What do we need from God to get to that goal? And then finally, third, what is it that we ourselves actually need to do? So three things for today. What is God's goal that tells us what to pray for? What do we need from God in order to get to that goal? And lastly, what do we need to do? So first, the payoff of this prayer is in that last phrase in verse 19. I hope you have a copy of the scripture in front of you. That last phrase in verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's the will of God for you. That you would be filled with nothing less than with him. With nothing less than his fullness. With nothing less than what fills God himself with his perfection, you can say it differently, with his holiness, that's the will of God for you. That's why he tells you in the Old Testament over and over and over, be holy as I am holy. God's desire is literally that you would have his holiness filling you up inside. His will, the plan that he's working on is in you, is that you would be so full of his perfection that there's no room left in you for anything that competes with him. No room in you for anything that tries to push him out. And Paul's not praying here for some kind of mystical hyper-spirituality. Retreats are great, I'm glad you guys went, but that's not the, the point here. He's praying for something that transforms then how you live life. This is chapter 3. In chapters 4, 5, and 6, you learn that God's fullness is very practical that it gets itself, it gets expressed in daily life. That God's holiness somehow guides you personally, it guides you in your interactions with other people, and it guides you as you deal with the pressures of life. And so here's God's will for you. That everything you do, whether you're going to school, going to work, talking with your friends, eating with your household, that every moment of your life would be done with the fullness of God flowing into you and then getting expressed in how you live. That's what Christianity is all about. It's having a new way of life because there's now a new kind of life that's living inside of you. I know there are a lot of wrong ideas about Christianity. There's the idea that it's a moral way of life, or the idea that when your life is no longer working, you turn to God and he makes it work, or that Christianity is just cultural, it's just the way that I grew up. I was talking to a college student a couple weeks ago who saw someone in class, and this person in class was wearing a cross, 
and a Playboy hoodie. And the combination struck my friend as these two things don't really go together. And he thought to himself, maybe this is an opportunity to talk with this other guy about faith. And so he's thinking in class, how do I go about doing that? Gathers up his courage, goes to this guy at the end of class, and he says, I hope you don't mind, but I couldn't help notice that you're wearing a cross, and I just wondered what that meant to you. Guy was not offended, but he said, oh, my grandmother gave it to me. I'm Catholic, but I'm not really spiritual. And my friend hears this, and he's, I don't know what to do with that. Because what did this other guy say? He just said, well, you know, Christianity is kind of my tribe. It's my background, it's my upbringing, but it's just a place to belong. If you think about it, you realize there is an element of truth to that. The people of God are a community where we do belong. Just like there's an element of truth to Christianity having moral teachings, just like there's an element of truth to Christianity producing a better way of life for you. The danger, though, is that if you put any of those at the center of what Christianity is, they derail you. Because God has this much bigger goal in mind for you. He wants you to share in his holiness as he himself lives in you, bringing everything about himself with him. And so it's that sense of verse 17, of having Christ dwell in your heart, of Christ not just stopping by to visit you, not treating you like an Airbnb or a Verbo, stay a little while and then go on, move on to something else to see something else, but it's that sense of Christ settling down with you, taking up residence, bringing all of his stuff with him, leaving none of his perfection, none of his holiness behind, bringing it all with him permanently. Think about that, and it'll blow your mind. God will not be satisfied until he has poured the ocean of himself into your teacup. Go down the ocean sometime. I love the ocean. It's one of the best places on the earth. Go down to the ocean and look out at that vast, unending body of water. And then hold up your water bottle or your travel mug or whatever you have. Are you ready to have that poured into this? That poured into you? You think, of course not. That doesn't make any sense. That's what God says he's going to do. And you read scripture and it's with this sense of you're going to love it as he does it. That's what God is up to in your life. That's his goal. That's what he's working hard at every moment of every day to make possible. It sounds crazy. It sounds impossible. How can the infinite God be in the limited you? How can his holiness be in you? If that doesn't sound nuts, you haven't thought about it long enough. It really is unimaginable, which is why Paul prays, verse 20, to the God who can do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. If this is going to be your reality, you need a God who's bigger than your own ability to think. 
Someone who has plans for you, for me, that are beyond what we can imagine. Can you imagine yourself as two times better than you are now? Two times more holy, two times less caught up in things that are unholy? What would that be like? To be 100% more godly than you are right now. What would you do differently? How, how would you think differently? Can you imagine that? I honestly can't. I don't know what that would be like. I don't know what Bill 2.0 would look like. How about three times better than you are right now? Four times. God is saying that you're going to be far more than that. Infinitely more than that, more than you can ask or think. You're going to be filled with his kind of holiness. And you're going to be that because he can do far more than you can ever ask or think along this line. Far more than you can even start to begin to imagine. That's your future. That's your destiny. He will pour his ocean into your teacup. Now, it's going to take an eternity to do that. He's infinite, you're finite. So it's going to take an infinite amount of time, but that's what he's working on in your life right now. And when you understand that, that is what makes sense out of your life. So every gift, every talent, every resource that he has ever given you is for the purpose of making you into someone that he can pour his fullness into. Every blessing, every good thing that comes your way is to make you into someone that he can pour his fullness into. Every struggle, every hardship that he allows into your life, brings into your life, every single one is to make you into someone that he can pour himself into. Every single thing you experience in life is necessary. Every one of those is there to bring about this goal. That makes the Christian life incredibly exciting as you think about where you're heading. It also makes the Christian life incredibly unsettling because God is absolutely determined to pour his fullness into you. It will take forever to do that, but it also means you're going to have to become someone who's able to receive him. He tells you that this is what he's doing, but you realize from script, the rest of Scripture, you're not ready for that. I'm not ready for that. And so God takes responsibility on himself to make you and me ready, even though it's going to take an awful lot of work. And so he will bring things into your life that he knows that you need that will outfit you for this incredible eternity. But if you're not set on his goal, then often what he brings into your life will upset you because you and he are working, moving toward different things. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in Mere Christianity. He said, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. That's the sewer lines. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? 
the explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one that you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. It's God's goal. It's to live with you, in you. And we're not ready for that the way we are right now. And so God has to do things at times that hurt abominably and don't seem to make any sense as he gets us ready. And so there are times where he'll let your career plans get derailed and he won't put you back on the track that you want to be on. Or that class that you really, really wanted will be closed and he won't open it up for you. You won't make the team when you're better than others who do. You'll get cut from auditions that you nailed. Or, actively, he'll bring things into your world that'll stress you out. Parents who just won't leave you alone, or a brother or sister who's annoying. People who rub you the wrong way that you can't avoid. Or you'll find yourself dealing with suffering, dealing with things you don't deserve, can't avoid. He will do things that hurt abominably, and don't seem to make sense. And if you don't have God's incredible plan in mind, you will find yourself upset with him because he's doing things that you don't think need to be done. How do you know when you're upset with God, even if you're not thinking that? Take a look at what comes out of your life. How do you know? You get depressed when hard things happen. Not sad, not disappointed, that's appropriate, that's normal, but depressed in that sense of, I just want to quit and give up. You get depressed, you get anxious about what might happen next, worried about the future that you can't control. You get angry and bitter that life is so unfair. You find yourself not praying because it doesn't seem to do any good. You're afraid to obey him because you just don't want to make anything worse. Find yourself spiritually lazy, apathetic because this is not what you signed up for. I get all of those. Not just because I talk to people, to you, to others, but those are all the ways that I respond as well to what God's doing. And I need the reminder that this passage points to. The reminder that God has a glorious plan that he is working toward so that everything he brings into your life, everything he brings into mine, the blessings, the disciplines, the struggles, all of those things move his plan forward for this purpose, to shape us into people that he can pour himself into over eternity. But that means then you're going to have to trust him if you're going to embrace what he allows into your life. You're going to have to trust him to work with him, not against him. So how do you do that? Point two, you're going to need something from him. You're going to need that middle section of the prayer. What is it? You have to know that he has your very best in mind. You have to know that he loves you and that everything he does, everything he allows in your life, comes from a heart of love. So let's look at that middle section. Paul's praying, and he prays, verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Why do you need that? So that you, 
being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So that what? So that that payoff we've already talked about, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You need to know Christ's love. It's not saying here that you need to love Jesus. This is not about what you need to do here. It's about what you need from God. You need to know that he loves you. You need to be, verse 17, rooted in his love. Your roots need to be sunk down into his love, pulling up nourishment for your soul from his love. You need to be grounded in his love. It's a different metaphor there. You, it, his love has to be the foundation that you then build all the rest of your life on. You need to be able, verse 18, to comprehend it, to understand it. And you can't do that on your own. You can only do that if, verse 16, if the Spirit strengthens you. If the Spirit of God gives you this sense of Christ's love that you can't get on your own. Think, well, why can't I get this on my own? Because, verse 19, Christ's love surpasses knowledge. This is not something that you can work out if you just have enough time, if you do enough study, if you do your homework. Jesus loves you so much that it goes way beyond what you can wrap your mind around. That's why it's not enough to know it in your head. Do you know that phrase? Maybe you've used this. I know it in my head, but not in my heart. It's a phrase that says, I understand intellectually what's going on but it's not real to me. I understand intellectually that Jesus loves me, but I don't feel it. His love doesn't seem real. Why isn't it real? The answer here is because your head is not big enough to contain this reality. Yes, we can talk about Christ's love. We can describe it. We can think about it. We can try to get a sense of it, but you need more than that. You need something that's going to take it to the next level so that you can trust it, have confidence in it, be convinced of it, feel it. And you need that if you're going to enter in with joy to what God's doing in your life. There's a passage at the end of Romans 8 where Paul brings these two things together. He brings together that sense of how great God's love is, and he brings together that sense of his own confidence in Christ's love. He writes there, who, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How great is Christ's love for you? It's so great that nothing can ever separate you from it. Nothing you do will ever make Jesus love you less. Nothing you can do will ever make him stop loving you. Nothing can ever get in between 
him in you ever. Nothing you do can ever make him stop. Why? Because on the cross, he paid for everything that you've ever done that he hates. He stayed on the cross until the judgment of God against your sin and mine was exhausted. So everything in your life that God hates was judged. And at that point in time, it was atoned for, paid for, compensated for, until it was gone. And so now there's nothing left in you for God to hate. Which means there's only his love left for you. And that love is not temporary. It's endless. It has no limits or boundaries in its breadth, its length, its height, its depth. Jesus' love on the cross endured the holy wrath of an infinite God. And Jesus' love survived. His love went beyond the problem that you and I created. His love lasted longer than his life did. It lasted longer than God's wrath did. Jesus let go of his life before he ever let go of you. Loved you more than he loved himself 2,000 years ago, and he still does. Because when God raised him from the dead, he gave him a life that's never going to end. That means that the love Jesus has for you will also never end. And then God gave him power and authority over the entire universe. That means that there isn't anyone stronger than him anywhere, not in heaven, not on earth. And so no one can turn him against you. No one can take his love away from you. He's even stronger than death. You can't die and get away from his love. He'll still love you and raise you with him. That's the way that he relates to you in every moment of your life. Every single thing that he does, everything that he allows into your life comes from the same boundless, never-ending love. Everything he does in, in your life is motivated by wanting what's best for you. Why does he bring you blessing? Because he loves you. He wants what's best for you. Why does he allow suffering in your life? For the exact same reason. Because he loves you and wants what's best for you. Hebrews 12, different passage. We quoted, read from some of it today. Hebrews 12 tells us that God disciplines us. It does not say he punishes us. God does not try to make us pay for what we've done. But he does discipline us. And you think, well, what's the difference? Verse 10 tells you that difference. It says that he disciplines us for our benefit. It goes on, for our benefit so that we can share his holiness. That's very much what Paul here is saying. God disciplines us for our benefit so that he can then fill us with his fullness. Hebrews tells us that that's not any fun, that discipline feels painful, but that it produces good things in us, the good things that God wants for us so that he can pour himself into us for eternity because he loves us. So when you face hard things in your life, when what God does allows, hurts you, confuses you, it's not because God doesn't like you anymore. It's not because God is ignoring you. Not because he's paying you back for something else you did. 
because he's bringing something into your life for your good. And the only reason that he's doing that is because it's necessary for you, for his good plans for you. And a lot of us don't believe that. Sure, we can say that we know that's true, but we don't live like it's true. How can you tell when you're not living like it's true? It's because of what we talked about earlier. Because we're depressed and anxious and angry and bitter. Prayerless, disobedient, apathetic. Apathetic about God, apathetic about what he's doing in our lives. So take a look at your life. Look at how you're responding to life. And it will tell you what you really think of Christ's love. It'll tell you how much you experience it, how much you rely on it how much you value it. And if you and I are honest, we live far too much of our lives unaware of what it means that God is offering us his love and his fullness. It's like Jesus opens up a credit card with an unlimited credit line and he puts his name and your name on the, same, on the card at the same time and he says, here's how this works. It starts with a balance transfer. Take all of that debt that you can't pay off regardless of how hard you've tried and put it on the card and I will pay it immediately. We're not going to wait for the next billing cycle. Immediately, it's all gone. And then he tells you, you can use this anytime you want and I will cover all of it. Here's the deal. I get your debt you get my cash, all my resources, up to and including my fullness, all my love, all my spirit, my strength to deal with life. It's all yours. Please use this. That's why I'm giving it to you. I want you to use this. And we don't when we're depressed and anxious and angry and bitter. Because we don't believe that, that it could actually be that good, that it could be this true, that Jesus could really be that serious. We don't believe that he actually loves us this much. We don't believe that it's possible to feel that love in a really deep, satisfying way. And God knows that. He knows that we can know it in our heads, that we can see why we need this love, we can see that it's available to us, but he knows that we need more than this intellectual understanding. That we need for what's in our minds to filter down into our hearts so that we live by it. He knows that's what we need and he knows that that's gonna take more than we've got. That it actually takes supernatural help. And that's why Paul prays this prayer. Paul's praying here same thing, point three, that you and I need to do. Paul is praying for a fresh experience of this love, a fresh awakening to how God relates to us. Paul prays very top, verse 16, I pray that according to the riches of his glory, that God may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He prays to this God who can do more than you can ask or think. And he prays not according to what we deserve, 
not according to how good we are at praying, but he prays according to the riches of this God. He prays according to this unlimited credit account. And Paul asks that God would do what? That he would make us strong in our inner being, that he would make us strong spiritually where we're weak, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts. And I want you to think about the weirdness of that prayer for just a moment. <laughs> Who's he writing to? He's writing to Christians. If you read the whole book, it's clear. Chapters 1 and 2, Paul believes they already have the Spirit of God in them. They already are united with Christ in that sense. What? They already have Christ dwelling in their hearts. It's the definition of a Christian. So Paul's not praying here in chapter 3 that they would become Christians. He's not praying that they would be something that they were not before. He's praying that they would have more of what they already have. He's praying that they have a fresh experience of Christ, a renewed sense of his love, a deeper work of his spirit making them stronger, a sense of giving them, uh, making them more convinced of his love, more in tune with his incredible plans for them. And this prayer comes at a really important point in the book. Chapters 1 and 2 are largely theological. They tell you all about God and about what God's up to. They tell you that God has personally stepped into history in order to remake the human race. That he has worked to bring people together who used to hate each other because they used to hate God. And that God has done everything necessary to make these people into one family who love him and love each other. That family then has a different lifestyle from the rest of the human race. What is that lifestyle? It's spelled out in chapters 4, 5, and 6. These chapters are very practical. They tell you how to live in God's family now that he's already made you part of it. So think about that structure here. Chapters 1 and 2, here's what God is doing. Chapters 4, 5, and 6, here's what you need to do as you enter into what God's doing. But apparently, God doesn't think that that's enough. He thinks that something is missing in between your theology and your practice. He doesn't think that simply knowing these things is enough in order to live it out. He thinks you need something right here in chapter 3 that doesn't come from you. And so Paul pauses and prays in between theological knowledge and practical application. He says, I have to pray for you before I go on. Because if you don't have this fresh, revived experience of Christ loving you, ongoing, new and new, more and more, <laughs> you'll never be able to live out what he calls you to. It's not enough to know theology, to live it out. Something has to happen to you, has to keep happening to you experientially. You have to experience your faith, not just study it, not just know things about it. You have to have this lived-out experience of God loves me, and I know it. 
you can build the most incredible car. You can outfit it with the latest navigational technology. You can spend hours researching, planning an incredible road trip. But without an engine or a motor, that car is not going anywhere and neither are you. This section of Ephesians is the engine of the Christian life. Without this experience of actively being loved by Jesus, you're stuck. And you'll find everything else about the faith just endlessly frustrating, wondering why you can't get this to work for you. You have to have this, and it only comes from God, and the only reason that you can ask for it is because he promises to do more than you can ask or think if you're asking in this direction. You have to ask and ask and ask and keep on asking as he fills and fills and keeps on filling you, pouring himself into you like he promises because he loves you. Lord Jesus, will you make this reality for each one of us again today? And will you make this reality for each one of us this afternoon and tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday? Lord, will you keep increasing our awareness of how much you love us. Lord, whether that's bringing scripture into our minds, whether that's encouraging us through songs, whether that is some sense of your smile on us, Lord, will you do that? Lord Jesus, you bought this for us at the cross. Let us enter into that now, just like we will for the rest of eternity. And ask this in Jesus' name, amen.